let's start the year with our very first ever ramen culture podcast. Our first guest is George Cow. He's the CEO of Standard Fair Food Company, where he specializes in hospitality, food, and beverage. He has a great appreciation for different cultures and the language of food is his medium in connecting with people. Born in Taipei, Taiwan, and as a child lived between Japan and the United States, he's fluent in English, Japanese, and Taiwanese. But what I love about him the most is his work in helping establish the U.S. ramen culture. He's an amazing educator and communicator, so I'm just going to let him do his thing now. How are you doing, George? Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm great. Thanks uh, for having me. Of course. It's New Year's Day 2020. This is how we set the tone. Where are you right now? What did you do for New Year's Eve? And how is 2020 starting out for you? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, 2020 looks great. You know, the weather uh, right off the bat is uh, wonderful. Not like years past where it's sludged and uh, miserable and cold and dreary. It's uh, the weather has been really cooperative and um, you know, travel is really easy, but um, pretty low key this year. I think uh, last year was just, you know, trying to get a lot of things in order and it was really busy for a lot of people, I think, especially in our industry. But um, I'm looking forward to uh, 2020 year of the uh, Japan Olympics and it's a leap year. It's it's uh, pretty exciting. That's right. It's the leap year. It's my dad and brother's birthday. <laughs> They're both born on February 29th. No kidding. Awesome. Thanks for that reminder. Just so my audience understands why I chose George to be on my first podcast is wow. because he had a ramen pop-up a few months back uh, in 2018, uh, 2019, and it was one of the best miso ramen I, ramen I had in America. So just wanted to pick his brain, how he came up with the recipe and how he got into ramen. And as I did my own research, George, I found out George has a pretty interesting resume. Uh, you were into sake sales and then you got into um, selling noodles. Uh, George, what, what brought you to where you're at now? <laughs> That's a, that's a big question, but uh, first of all, thank you for uh, those kind words. Um, I just fell in love with the food industry. You know, as a little kid, I thought I always wanted to be a banker, following the footsteps of my family, you know, my grandfather, my father, but uh, I did my internships and I realized I wasn't, you know, passionate, like truly passionate about it. Um, I, I guess I wasn't very good at it either because it just, you know, I was always, my, my mind was wandering. I was always thinking about food and about, you know, like there's this book in college that someone dropped on my desk called La Russe Gastronomique. And basically it's this like amazing encyclopedia of, uh, all foods, especially French food. And I think as a young kid and you're, you're looking at, you know, fancy fine dining, you know, restaurants. Yeah. French food is really captivating and it's beautiful. It's luxurious. It's delicious. So I, I kind of uh, fell in that trap. And the more I did research, the more I looked into it, I knew that was that was industry for me. So um, I actually started my career with a, uh, a French company, I guess. It's a distributor here locally in the Northeast called D'Artagnan. They specialize in foie gras and premium meats. They're kind of, a, you know... Um, the first people to bring foie gras to, to the United States. So um, I did my, uh, 
my entry level sales, if you will. And uh, after that, I was I had this opportunity to work with a Japanese distributor uh, called New York Mutual Trading. And uh, you know, with my contacts with you know the fine dining establishments, the white tablecloth restaurants in New York, they thought it'd be pretty interesting with someone with my background. I speak Japanese, grew up in Tokyo and the United States, uh, kind of understood both cultures. I could probably segue and, and kind of introduce the Japanese culinary world to, you know, American chefs. So that was really the, uh, the idea upon my um, hire. So I was a Wagyu specialist and two weeks into um, <laughs> my new job, there was a trade embargo. Um, the U.S. decided to uh, ban all Wagyu from Japan. Um, and it was basically uh, kind of like a mad cow scare. Um, yes, I remember that. There were some some issues, you know, with, uh, I guess, Macau and, and just the fact that not all beef was uh, tested in the United States kind of freaked out the USDA and um, therefore everything was banned. So including Wagyu beef from Japan. So the president of the New York Mutual Trading at that time asked if I'd be interested in sake um, and actually, you know, going from culinary to to more of the, the beverage side. And um it was a great challenge. I knew nothing of it. I knew nothing of the wine business either, but um, it really uh, drew me in. And so um, we spent the next seven years trying to build a, uh, a substantial portfolio to sell to the Americas. You know, mm -hmm. basically, you know, sake was relatively unknown um, today. Maybe it's 10x or 20x of what it was 10 years wow. ago, but still we make up less than 1% of all liquor sales in the United States. So there's still a lot to go, but um, yeah, that was, that was really my uh, entry into the Japanese food world. And then, you know, working with a lot of uh, Japanese restaurants and American restaurants, I just kind of grew my, my spectrum of knowledge, if you will. And um, at that time, you know, ramen was relatively unknown, but um, a company called Sun Noodle was starting to, Yes. Um, My audience are very aware of Sun Noodle. <laughs> yeah. So um, Kenshiro Uki, uh, the son of the current president, uh, Mr. Uki. Kenshiro. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Ken. Um, he hired me uh, as basically an educator for ramen um, for his company and for the industry. And I think, you know, the five years uh, I was there, my tenure, um, we did some great things. You know, we really support a lot of pop-ups and a lot of, you know, um, chefs coming from really serious kitchens who had this passion to just create ramen and, um, the love and the passion really, you know, spilled over. And, um, we were able to, you know, not just do North America, but also expand ramen to Europe. So there's a, a humongous presence of Sun Noodle in Europe as well. So I spent uh, five great years there and then I, uh, decided I actually, to start my own uh, business. I actually, uh, I had dinner with Kenshiro a few weeks ago and, uh, he was, uh, this, this is how he told me, this is what he told me about you. He saw you explain about how, uh, a regular person who has no idea what sake is all about. And, uh, he was listening to one of your seminars and he just thought this guy ha has the ability to elo eloquently, uh, communicate what sake is all about, how to taste it, how to enjoy it, how to pair it. And he that's one of the reasons he recruited you. So oh man. 
<laughs> yeah, really those, great. Those are, great things those are really kind words. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for uh, sharing that. That's uh, that's really touching. You know, we, we really had a blank canvas. So in that respect, I think we were extremely lucky. Timing was great. But, um, you know, I, he, he gave me a long leash. You know, I was able to craft, um, I guess, what I thought were the important parts in explaining the introduction of ramen to, you know, America, to chefs, to, to you know, serious chefs and to chefs who are more on the hobby side. But we, uh, you know, were able to say, you know, five pillars of five building blocks of ramen and we're able to break it down in, in really simple words and concepts. And uh, I think the nature of ramen is just, you know, so it gravitates towards, you know, people's uh, comfort zone and passion. So it just, it worked out really well. Awesome. And so you were uh, at Mutual for seven years and then you got recruited by Sun Noodle. And as, as I recall, uh, Sun Noodle wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, really focused on the East Coast around the time you came on board. That's right. Um, you know, Sun Noodle, I think, prior to me joining, um, well, it's, it's first and foremost a Hawaii, a Honolulu-founded uh, company. And I think for the first 25, 27 years, um, they were focused just on the islands. And uh, they reached out to a couple of Japanese distributors and uh, mutual trading in the West Coast in Los Angeles picked them up. So um, they built a factory uh, there. And that was basically the first um, time uh, Sun Noodle noodles were available in the uh, continental U.S. Um, but wh- around what time was that? What year? Was that? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I want to say California was 2005, 2007 when it was established. And then... Uh, East Coast, um, it, the factory in the East Coast was actually in Teterboro. Currently, it's in Carl's, Carlstad, but uh, Teterboro, New Jersey. And I want to say that's like 2012, maybe. So we built a uh, very small, um, kind of like, a, I don't want to say guerrilla warfare, but it was, it was you know, to make sure that um, the, the ramen shops here in New York could get the best of the best. Fresh noodles straight from the yes, factory made that's daily. what sun noodle is capable of doing compared right. to these other um competitors that's their advantage that's outside looking in uh that's i believe that's their advantage yeah three three factories i think there's a fourth one coming up and you know it's it's america's a big big country you need um good logistics um consistent products and uh you know it's 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 a free market so you know everyone has the ability to to do what sun is doing but um you know with good leadership and good vision and passion i think um you can live the american dream so you were there for how many years four four years yeah about five years and then i was able to start my own business i uh so currently i'm i'm kind of a broker i i connect farmers manufacturers makers to uh, distributors and ultimately restaurants for them to use and um it's it's uh it's a it's an amazing ride awesome so yeah i'm sorry back to the question i'm sorry i kind of went on a tangent but the pop-up right so this was uh you know i kind of wanted to see what it was all about from a first person's perspective meaning you know I've, i've met thousands of chefs you know i've helped mm-hmm. hundreds of restaurants 
um, kickstart a, a ramen program. But, um, you know, I had that itch. I, I wanted to kind of see, you know, okay, everything that I've taught, everything that I've said, you know, I wanted to put into action. So uh, I, I met a, a, a buddy in town. Um, he, he runs a breakfast and lunch uh, deli, delicatessen. Yes. And in the evenings, it's it's empty. It's closed. And I said, hey, maybe we can just, uh, you know, test this out for the market. Right. Let's see if this this region um, can is, is interested in ramen. So mm-hmm. um, I kind of dissected and and took, you know, the the building blocks of ramen. Right. There, and I've always preached that there's tare, which is the seasoning. There's the stock, which gives the body. There's the aroma oils. It gives the uh, the the oom for the the final waft of uh, aromatics, and then you have toppings and noodles. And if you can focus on these five elements in ramen, um, you should come up with a pretty pretty darn good bowl of, of noodles. So um, we uh, we went on this. Uh, how can we create a pop up weekly? I think mm-hmm. it was on a Tuesday evening every week for about three months. Um, basically, you know, starting from scratch, right? And um, we came down. We came down to a uh, a formula that basically, in ninety minutes, mm-hmm. with the right ingredients that we procured, mm-hmm. we can we can create basically a hundred bowls of ramen um, as a pop up anywhere in the United States. Amazing. So uh, yeah, with the help of some distributors who carry the certain products, essentially um, we, we we figured this out. So. Uh, yeah, for like three months, we had a lot of fun in Westchester County in New York, and um, we served this miso ramen. And the funny thing is, you know, ramen tends to be very oily, fatty, and uh, just just really, you know, punches your gut, you know, um, especially in New York City. I think tonkotsu um, is, easily, is easily identified, and uh, it makes sense to start. A ramen campaign or a restaurant with tonkotsu, but what? Why um, does America love tonkotsu so much? That's a good question. I think it's just identifiable. You know, it's it's it has the oil, it has the salt, it has you know some sweetness with uh, certain oils, and uh, these are the three elements in the human DNA that if you can if you can hit you you have a very successful menu. Um, this is just food science talking, but. Uh, I think Americans in general like strong flavors. They're again easily identifiable, mm-hmm. and um, you know, doing like uh, food shows in Europe, right? Like, especially I remember when we did ramen noodles for the first time at the Cial. This is uh, a food show every two years in Lyon, France. Um, the French are very aware of food. You know, they have a very wide spectrum of uh, understanding their own cuisine from light broths to rich, heavy, unctuous soups. So the way we spoke about ramen was, you know, we have asarike, which is the light, maybe let's say shoyu style from Tokyo. And uh, we compared it to a consomme from France, right? Mm-hmm. It's light and uh, just on the light aromatics, but it's uh, the viscosity is very, very uh, easy on the palate. Then we have Kotterike in Japanese, the, the rich tonkotsu style, and we pair that with uh, like a potage or uh, some kind of uh, chowder, you know, and then the French understood it immediately. So yeah. in France, you can get asarike and kotterike, right? Um, ramen. But in the States, 
look at all the successful, let's say, uh, fast food chains or um, these, uh, what, what are they called? Like uh, the Chipotles of America, the fast casuals, right? Yes. Their soups are always um, chunky, right? Like you go to Panera, mm-hmm. they sell the broccoli, cheddar broccoli, or they have like a really thick um, gumbo, you know? And, and very seldom do you really see a clear chicken noodle soup. Today's chicken noodle soup is mostly starchy noodles that have made it very cloudy. And, you know, there's you can see a, a, a layer of fat on top. You need that unctuousness in the United States. So I think that's why tonkotsu is so popular here. Got it, got it. Because in Japan, uh, uh, the last time I, I checked was like Tokyo, uh, shoyu ramen was um, the most popular. So yeah. Asari yeah. K. And, and, you know, Japan is, right, the birthplace of ramen, right? So we look at, from a historical standpoint, the first ramen was 1910, circa 1910. Mm-hmm. And that was Asarike, Yokohama style, next to Tokyo, shoyu. And then as the human palate, you know, wants more and more, then we went into uh, miso, miso ramen in Hokkaido around 1930s, 1935. And then 1950s, tonkotsu came up. So you can notice the progression in the bricks level of the, the stocks. And then the noodles became chewier and thicker. And uh, basically, you know, it just, the human palate wants more and more and more until there's, there's no, you, you can't go any further. Today, you know, the thickest ramen, you can stick a, a chopstick in it, right? And it stands up in, in the broth. And yeah. it's, uh, it's just, it's really cloying and it's, it's really hearty. And that came around, 2010 so within a hundred year cycle i think the people have you know exhausted the um i guess the the human uh capability on on the palate and they went back to the 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 tried and true the old school you know asarike and i think you know give enough time in the united states i think that's ability here too but for the time being you know people want something that's you know punch in your face like just really really cloying yes there's a lot of tonkotsu place that um that's why a lot of my uh the people from japan would always ask me there's a lot of tonkotsu shops mm-hmm. and they want they want something different and true <laughs> but hey this is the market so that's what i basically yeah tell and it's a big market right and there's there's the, the, the outliers who come in first you know america is funny there's there's def- easily a 10-year lag between the first um, you know, uh, innovators to mainstream. And I think such a big country with so much population, there's just a lot of opportunities out there for entrepreneurs to, to even pick up, you know, five years down the road and still, you know, make a, a great, great investment. So uh, how come you didn't do, you went with miso ramen for your pop-up? That's right. So I went with miso and I wanted to challenge myself. I didn't want to use... Um, a pork base or a chicken based stock. I went vegetarian, and you know, if you look into the, uh, the history of miso ramen, um, Asaikawa or in Sapporo, they do it in a wok, right? They mm-hmm. they stir fry the veggies and then they hit it with a stock. And at the, in in Hokkaido, they do use um, pork stock or chicken stock, but when you saute something and there's this caramelization happening you can get away with even water 
But uh, in my case, I wanted to use tea. I'm, I'm actually, uh, so I was born in Taiwan, raised in Tokyo and in the States. So I have like a <laughs> kind of a Chinese background. palate is crazy. Uh, I just like to eat a lot, right? So um, I realized that, you know, in, in Chinese food, you can cook with tea. And I thought, why wouldn't I use a little bit of extra viscosity from tea to mm-hmm. help in my stock uh, for miso ramen? And when I use tea, um, I guess, you know, you have the tannins or the, the, just the, the essence of tea. And also when you hit it with miso paste, there's already enough viscosity in the soup to um, give you a nice coating in your mouth. And, you know, w- with the toppings, if I just put a nice uh, piece of chashu on top and maybe an onsen egg, I thought that would be enough. So I, I really try to create a vegetarian friendly uh, menu, just take off the chashu and, you know, you have a vegetarian yes. um, miso ramen with, you know, uh, operationally, uh, that's genius. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's, it, it was a small kitchen and uh, I didn't want to have, you know, a menu with 10 different ramens. I wanted, you know, vegetarian and maybe with chashu, two options. And, and your chashu is day. amazing, by the way. Uh, can you explain like <laughs> how you thanks. got into that chashu? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of, uh, you know, by, by sheer luck, I, I did a lot of demos you know across the country with different distributors and one of the the distributors uh we worked with in uh, new england they sourced this amazing pork this duroc pork from iowa and uh, it's from the company called beelers Uh, it's a sixth generation farming family but um tim beeler the patriarch is uh kind of known for his um ideas on animal husbandry, especially for pork in the United States. I think he wrote basically the initial, um, I don't know. I don't know what the specifics are, but he you know, testified in front of Congress and he explained that this is how you would raise a clean pork program. And wow. he's really a pioneer in, in how great pork could be. And it's very similar to Japanese uh, aka buta. It's, um, you know, there's the word Berkshire or Kurobuta is, is so used, mm-hmm. so overused, I think. But if you look at any Berkshire program in the United States, it's never 100% Berkshire. They actually, it's 50% Berkshire and 50% Duroc. And a lot of, um, I, th- I, I guess, meats are also hybrids of two different breeds to create the best of bo- both worlds. But the Duroc, a purebred Duroc, is utterly delicious. It's cheaper than Berkshire, and it performs uh, as good, if not better, than Berkshire, in my opinion. And so I really chose to use this particular pork. We would salt and pepper and then roast it for 90 minutes in a combi oven. That's it. Mm. And uh, we would slice and put it on the ramen. And and that's all we needed to do. It was... uh, It's nice and juicy. It's amazing. (laughs) I chose that route rather than, you know, buying commodity pork and then cooking it and cooking it and soaking it and marinating it. I thought minimal was best, and I'm I'm, I'm happy that you liked it. Yeah, it just pairs well with the vegetarian miso ramen. I'm very surprised it was <laughs> yes. uh, vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. Just just the pork was not vegetarian, but everything else, yeah, it, it fits the uh, the bill. So I, I feel I feel that you know Americans you know, love the challenge. They love, um, you know, in Japan, right? How often do you find restaurants um, 
being asked, do you have a vegetarian menu? Is this vegan? Is this gluten-free? Yes. But here in the States, this is the nature of the business. And I think yes. um, Miso Ramen, of all things, has the potential to shine as the ultimate vegetarian ramen dish. It has the viscosity, the richness, the flavor. It's, um, you know, and then with miso, you have thicker noodles, gives you more chew. It has uh, all the indicators of, um, you know, being the ultimate, ultimate ramen. Um, so if you, like I Googled, uh, searched Tonkotsu ramen, miso ramen with the trends. Mm -hmm. And um, tonkotsu and miso is uh, very, uh, uh, are the two most popular uh, ramen in America. Mm -hmm. Why do you think miso ramen is super popular? Mm. I think just the fact that, you know, the, the body, right? It has so much going on at each slurp. Um, most times, you know, tonkotsu, the noodles are about 140 grams. But with miso, we usually pair um, that bowl with about 160 grams of uh, starch, if not a little bit more. And, mm. uh, you know, Americans are big eaters, man. So yeah. if you're not, loading it up with animal fat and, and, you know, all these, uh, other lipids, you know, in a, in a tonkotsu, I think you got to substitute that with, um, just more mass. And I think, uh, miso in that sense really helps out. Plus miso is great spicy as well. So you can, it can cater to, you know, your, your typical miso. Um, you can do a miso blend or you can make it even more dynamic with chili spice and other things that give it a little bit more heat. Awesome. Awesome. Being in the industry, like you, you hear so many uh, reasons, but one of the reasons that I've heard is that a lot of people in America first probably experienced with Japanese food at a sushi shop You're or right. eating a California roll or something mm -hmm. very easier to get into uh, because most people aren't really comfortable eating raw fish for the first time. So. Right. And oftentimes at these sushi shops, they'll offer us miso soup. So I think people are already aware of what miso is. So yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. All right. It's, it's, it's a word that's already been, um, shared and, and it's part of, uh, you know, our language as, as American English speakers, we know and heard of what miso soup is. So perhaps that also helps. Yeah. That, that bridge into the ramen world. And it's also, uh, miso is very healthy. So, uh, very true. It gives it, People are a little bit more comfortable mm -hmm. uh, ordering miso than tonkotsu, maybe. <laughs> People who like tonkotsu are going to always uh, order that. But True, true. Yes. So uh, what's so any more pop-ups in the future, or are you um, waiting, waiting it out? Never say never, right? But uh, for the time being, I think there's other projects that I have to focus on. But um, that, was, that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of interesting data that we were able to collect. Um, and I think, you know, from what we were able to collect, I can give an even more in-depth uh, pitch to a lot of people who want to open up ramen shops, you know, like what's the overhead uh, cost uh, in terms of uh, equipment, in terms of Chinaware, um, you know, all that stuff and, and food cost. Basically, you know, we, we got quotes from three different Japanese distributors. Um, so, you know, any corner uh, of the United States, um, we, we should be able to give a very 
detailed forecast of how how much you know uh, ultimately it would run you to open up a, a shop if it's a pop up if it's a brick and mortar and um, you know the time frame what kind of equipment what kind of land um, I guess uh, hardware you need you know do you need a, a two inch you know uh, gas line or if you want to run you know electric how much you know wattage and all that stuff we need. So that, that was, you know, a lot of education for myself. And I mm-hmm. think, uh, you know, we were getting some calls from people like in Vegas and California and Portland, you know, wanting to uh, get into the ramen biz. So it really, it really was nice to uh, get some firsthand knowledge with those pop-ups. Do you, do you do any uh, ramen consulting at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. Actually um, food consulting. So ramen is uh, part of my wheelhouse, but uh, I also do, you know, um, like, uh, Japanese steakhouses, you know, with different types of wagyu available in the United States, and of course sake. You know, my my uh, my my history starts with uh, Japanese chizake, and uh, I love it. So um, anytime I can, you know, educate people on a drink menu or even uh, a food menu, um, izakaya to you know fine dining, it's uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, consult. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm happy to. Uh, have anyone reach out and uh, want to talk shop. Awesome. We need more of your miso ramen all over the <laughs> United States. Thanks. Not thanks. just the U.S., but uh, even Europe. So. Oh, that's really kind of you. Thank you. So what are you, uh, so what happened after, what are you, guys, what are you doing now after uh, working for Sun Noodle and um, you're doing your own thing now, right? Yeah, yeah. I started a company called Standard Fair Food Company. And uh, it, it's, you know, we're a brokerage house, but we also do consulting and, all things in between, you know, so uh, anything food related, if you need to talk about, you know, what does it, what does it take to, to, you know, open up a Japanese restaurant? Who do I need to talk to? What kind of, you know, menu, how big of a menu, you know, we will, we'll analyze the demographic you're in and we'll systematically go through, you know, the options, right? What distributors, because ultimately it's logistics that uh, inhibits a lot of, uh, you know, spirited entrepreneurs but uh, once we have logistics down um everyone you know has the passion and the skill to to execute you know people this this is what's really beautiful about our industry is i think um you know the least common denominator is the love for food and i think you know we all share that and um we just want to share our passion and feed people and make people happy so you know, if I can kind of fill in the puzzles and and, and the cracks, you know, for uh, people, I think everything else is kind of smooth sailing. So, uh, yeah, it's I'm happy to help out in any way. Awesome. I want to transition a little bit from ramen to your experience uh, with sake. Mm-hmm. So I think in Japan, sake and ramen, they didn't complement each other. Ramen is a fast food. Uh, and people come and eat and just take off, right? Right. But in America, sake and ramen go hand in hand. I think Ipudo kind of helped market that as well. Absolutely. Uh, what Ipudo did was basically, I think it was perfect for New York City. I agree. It was, it was you know, two relatively unknown products from Japan with pretty good history and pedigree um, just kind of blossomed and the the rise of Japanese cuisine was you know I mean it was a kind of a perfect storm you know when I first started in the industry around like early two thousands and you know the, remember like the Zagat 
food magazine. Mm-hmm. The the top twenty five restaurants in New York, like we were lucky to even get like a mention of Japanese food on that magazine or that mm-hmm. that food food um, journal. But uh, look at it today, you know, the top twenty restaurants in Manhattan. I think ten of them are Japanese. You know, yeah. the most expensive the most expensive food, the most expensive dinner you can have is a sushi dinner in New York City. It's it's like well over five hundred dollars now. So <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. It is crazy. Um, you know, New Yorkers eat way more sushi than Japanese on a uh, per capita basis. You know, like in Japan, it's kind of a, a big deal. It's a treat to go out with your family to eat sushi. But, uh, you know, we have a huge spectrum in terms of, let's say, quality. And um, I don't want to say authenticity because that's really misleading. But, you know, hardcore Edomai style, you know, Ginza sushi, really beautiful mm-hmm. It's it's structured. It's made by this like master, you know. It's it's just a waft of cloud in your mouth when you bite into it. Versus, you know, like the I love whole food sushi or or just these, you know, like the American inspired sushi is what I eat here in the states because it's kind of great, you know. Like <laughs> we're Americans. I, yeah. I grew up on here in the states, Big Macs you know, KFC and the California roll is, in my opinion, one of the most important food inventions, like top 10 easily in the last yeah. century. And uh, it's delicious. And it wasn't very common in Japan. But today, you know, I think last five years or so, you go to um, the Kaiten sushi, the, the conveyor belt sushi places, and they'll mm-hmm. have, you know, kanikama in, in rolls and, and all that stuff. So, you know, it's uh it's this, uh, I don't know, this, this wave of Japanese renaissance here in, in New York, especially in New York. But it's, it's going to trickle into all, you know, areas of the United States. And like most things, everything starts in the coasts. So L.A., New York, you know, we get, we get the, uh, the outliers, you know, the first uh, adapters to, you know, these new foods. Awesome, man. Like, I love your story. I love your background. But before I let you go, I have two more questions. Sure. A lot of people don't understand about sake much. Uh-huh. What's the simplest way of, let's say, I have a friend that's never had sake. How would sure. you introduce it to them? First and foremost, sake is a brewed beverage. So it's actually closer to beer than it is to wine. All right. So wine, by definition, has to come from a fruit juice. Already has sugars. And uh, in terms of... Uh, sake it's it's basically the solid is rice there's four main ingredients rice water yeast and mold the mold is you know kind of a a, a dirty word in, in english but uh, in japanese it's king and and when you say king people understand it it's the foundation in all japanese fermented products soy sauce miso sake they all share this commonality king and uh basically if you don't start with good uh, king or the, uh, the mold that creates sacrification. What, what is, what you're able to do is change, convert complex carbohydrates into sugars before you pitch it with yeast and water. So it ferments. So in a nutshell, think of beer. Beer has basically two styles, lagers and ales. Sake has two styles, junmai and non-junmai sake. Okay. The word junmai basically means pure rice. So there's rice, water, yeast, and mold. Nanjumai adds brewer's alcohol to the final mix. That alcohol is very similar to cachaca, 
or like a clear spirit, it elevates the alcohol level probably 1 or 1.5% more than a Junmai sake. So mm. in general, sake is around 16% alcohol by volume. The non-Junmai, the Honjozo style, is maybe 17 or 18%. And it's not to say one is better than the other. It's just the Honjozo, the brewer's alcohol added, opens up flavors and aromas that your palate would not normally detect. So it's just two different styles, okay? okay. And then from there, how it's graded in terms of milling. I'm milling the rice kernel. So think of my fist as a rice kernel. The outer core is made of, of lipids and proteins. The center is called is basically starch, called the shimpaku. And basically, you want to rub off all the outer core to get to the center. I'm sorry, the outer shell to get to the center core of the, the shimpaku, the pure starch, so that you can convert that into sugars. And once you have a clean sugar, it's not muddled with uh, those outer parts of the, the shell, you're able to create very ar aromatic and beautiful, elegant sake. So, um, you know, it, it, it takes... The mo more expensive ones are the ones that's been shaved off the most. Correct, correct. The more you shave off, the cleaner the starch, therefore the cleaner the, the sake you, you should achieve. So by definition, the, the taxation office in, in Japan basically determines the... Uh, the rice polishing grades. So if you want to sell a Jumai Daiginja, which is basically the most expensive style of sake, you have to mill it past 50%, mm -hmm. but you're going to get taxed the highest. And, and taxation is actually a very universal um, outlier, I guess, for, for alcohol throughout the world. You know, it's depends on how much the government wants to take and therefore how much production you're able to create and how you price things out and then marketing comes into play. But in general, again, sake is more like a beer. We ferment with ale type of yeasts and ferment for about 30 days to create the most aromatic sakes. Um, today, sake is better than it has been ever in the history of sake making. What the, I mean by that is if you were to look at like the samurai or the, the, the shogun class, you mm -hmm. know, hundreds of years ago, they never had sake this good. Today's technology is really a testament to the evolution of sake and uh, everyone should be, you know, trying it and, and getting to uh, be familiar with sake. You know, if you love, if you love a Riesling, if you love Sauvignon Blanc, if you love Chardonnays, I think sake is an easy bridge to, to, to cross over to. It's, you know, you can treat it like any chilled wine. You drink it basically out of white wine glasses uh, for the most part. You know, sake, more more sophisticated sake drinkers will have specific um, stemware for sake. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, it's it's very um, easy to fall in love with sake and just give it a shot. I think uh, there's so many professionals now today um, focusing on sake, you know, just about any large city, you're going to have, you know, a number of professionals have, who have focused and studied sake, gone to Japan to visit breweries, perhaps even started their own breweries here in the United States. There's, there's a wonderful um, brewery in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Kura. There's wonderful places in Minneapolis of all places. Um, there's some in Texas. There's some in Florida. I mean, it's, it's really blossoming. And I think um, if you want to take anything out of, uh, this this very long conversation, we can we can basically say yeah. If, if you love flavor, if you love 
depth, if you love or aromatics, if you love temperature changes within, you know, your beverage, sake can can pretty much dance with any type of those um, topics. You know, it's it's uh, there's a, there's a saying in Japan. There's over ten thousand ways to make sake, but um, you know, it's there's there's just so many variations of just how to manipulate these four main ingredients. And that's the beauty of uh, simplicity, I think. And Japan does it very well. Amazing, amazing. What would pair well with like tonkotsu ramen or miso ramen? Tonkotsu ramen or miso ramen? Well, okay. So one thing is it's fatty, it's unctuous, and there's a lot of chew, right? You're chewing a lot. So you have to have something that holds up to that. Um, for the most part, most times when we start a meal, we might go with a more aromatic Jumai Daiginjo, the Daiginjo class, because it's got those floral aromatics. Mm-hmm. As we get closer to the hardier dishes throughout the meal, um, we like to go with maybe less polishing. And also, if you have the option to get something Nama, which is unpasteurized, or if you have something like Kimoto, which goes through an extra long fermentation process to raise the lactic acids. So acidity plays a huge part in the balance of sake. There's sweetness and acidity, and the acidity is lactic acid. So if you can find perhaps something with a higher acid um, acidity and also maybe a little bit drier, you might go really well with um, these fattier notes, these fattier uh, dishes like tonkotsu ramen. Uh, one of my favorites is kikusui, uh, Namagenshi. Yeah, it's from Niigata. It's uh, it's in this like really awesome yellow can. They're the pioneers of selling namazake throughout Japan. I think back in 1972, no one dared sell namazake. All right, so there's at that time probably I don't know four thousand breweries. No one dared sell namazake because the logistics. By the time it got to the main um, cities like Tokyo, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have gone bad already, you know, just, just the, the te- technology wasn't there, how to can it, how to bottle it wasn't there. So um, the owner of Kikusui and Niigata, he came up with this ingenious plan to put it in aluminum cans, fill mm-hmm. it to the brim. So sake is very susceptible to two things, sunlight and heat. So by putting it in an aluminum can, because you notice all sake bottles are tinted, right? They're, 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 yes. they're never sold in a clear glass bottle or a plastic bottle. It's always tinted. That's to block the UV rays. And then you notice that premium sake are always held in refrigeration because heat will also cause it to go bad quickly. So by putting it in a can, filling it up to the brim, he took out, you know, um, excess oxygen, which would oxidize. And also the aluminum blocked 100% UV light. Hmm. So now you're, you're really, you know, taking away a lot of its enemies and, these aluminum cans could stack. You can put them in refrigerated trucks and get it down to anywhere in Japan. And basically, um, it would taste just like it was coming out of the press. And they revolutionized this technology. Pretty much today, all sake, major sake brewers have a canned sake. And they can pay homage to the guys in Kikusui. Kikusui Brewery is really a trailblazer. And that sake, I think, goes really well with hearty rich dishes like tonkotsu ramen or miso ramen so look for that can that yellow can kikasui <laughs> namagenshu well there you go you got your ramen education your sake education uh where can we uh find you 
Oh, wow. Um, I have a website, uh, standardfairfood.com. Um, you know, there's a link to emailing me and, uh, I also have a, uh, Instagram account. Um, same thing, standard fair food co. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, shoot me a line, man. I'd love to talk shop and, uh, you know, love to help out, you know, fellow listeners of, uh, ramen culture. Thanks for having me, Mark. Of course. Thank you. Just want to thank George again for coming on this podcast. Please support him by following him on his Instagram account, Standard Fair Food Co. Throughout my very short time living in New York, I've been able to meet some amazing people like George in the industry, and we look forward to bringing more content for our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Arigatou gozaimashita!